Talk is cheap, as the saying goes. Anyone can make a promise and say anything, but how few there are who actually follow through with what they say. We have an election season upon us, and so perhaps this is more on our minds than ever before. Words, 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 promises, 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 and on and on it goes. Someone has sarcastically said that if you don't wish a person to do a certain thing, then all you need to do is get them talking about it. For the more a person talks about something, the more likely he or she is to never do it. Ouch. Guilty. Have you ever failed to follow through on a promise? To not follow through when you've given your word? Maybe with another person? Or how about with God? Have you ever said, yes, Lord, I will, and only to not do that? When it comes to the Word of God, when it comes to the will of God, like anything else, it's much easier to talk about it than to actually do it, to actually obey and to carry it out. And we need to beware because that is a dangerous thing. Throughout His ministry, Jesus spoke to this very thing, and one such occasion is our passage today in Matthew 21. So I invite you to turn there, if you're not already there, to Matthew 21, verses 28 through 32. Jesus has just been in conversation with the chief priests, the elders of the people, in other words, the religious leaders, and then he says these words in verse 28. What do you think? A man had two sons, and he went to the first and said, Son, go and work in the vineyard today. And he answered, I will not. But afterward, he changed his mind and he went. And he went to the other son and said the same. And he answered, I go, sir, but did not go. Which of the two did the will of his father? And they said, The first. And Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him. And even when you saw it, you did not afterward change your minds and believe him. In contrast to some of Jesus' other parables. This one is relatively brief and the flow is pretty straightforward. You see it there on the screen. Verses 28 through 30, Jesus actually gives the parable. Then in verse 31, he poses a question and his hearers respond to it. Then in the latter portion, he powerfully applies this parable to his hearers. The story's quite simple and straightforward and, and that's the beauty of it. That's also the power of it. And it shows us yet again that Jesus is a master teacher. Let's spend some time and just talk through the parable. It's the parable of the two sons. May not be one of Jesus' more familiar ones, but here it is. Matthew 21, an important juncture in Jesus' ministry. And we begin with this very simple, straightforward request from the Father. The father makes a simple request to each of his sons separately. He tells them to go and work in the vineyard today. 
In other words, go do your chores. And that's his instruction or request. But notice how he frames it. He frames it in terms of the, the father's will. You see that in verse 31. Which of the two did the will of his father? So that's how Jesus is framing this. The father has a desire. He makes a request or gives a command. And that is an expression of his will that the sons in this case would go and work in the family vineyard, that they go out and do their chores, if you will. Now, Jesus describes then the response of the sons. And first we have the first son. Son number one. He answers in verse 29. I will not, or I will not go. The initial response of son number one to this very straightforward command of the father is, I will not go and do what you just said, father. Can you imagine that? This is a no-no. He rejects his father's command and he defies his authority. This is brazen and this is audacious. You do not defy your father or your parent or anyone in authority in this way. In ancient Jewish culture, this response would have been very, very scandalous. Penalty flag thrown. And Jesus' hearers would have been shocked to hear this. Now, we're just reading it here this morning in a comfortable room, and we don't, maybe it doesn't fall on us in the same way. Jesus' hearers would have been shocked to hear that this is how the first son responded. Kids, teens, imagine, if you will, on any given Sunday that Pastor Miller stops you down here in front and says, excuse me, just a moment, I forgot my Bible. Would you please run into the office for me and bring it here could you do that for me, please? And you look him square in the eye and say, <laughs> with an attitude, no, I'm not going to do that. And you walk away. <laughs> Can you imagine that? It's audacious. You don't do that. And yet this is the response of the first son. It's offensive and it's wrong. And it's not a good response to say the least. But, and this is good, it's not his last response, thankfully. At some point later, this cheeky son begins to feel badly about things. And he regrets his decision, he regrets his disobedience. And as we see in verse 29, it says, But afterward, he changed his mind and he went. He changed his mind and he went. It means he regretted his decision. He, he felt badly. He has a change of heart, we might say. This change of mind can be translated, he, he repented. And in the King James, for example, it says he repented. But it's not the normal word for repentance in the New Testament. The word here has more to do with, with the emotional response, the remorse or the sorrow or the feeling badly. Sorrow and regret over a wrong done may lead to true and full repentance, as in the case of Peter when he denied Christ three times. Remember this. Peter eventually turned from that sin and he turned back to the Lord. And this is what Paul calls in 2 Corinthians 7 a godly sorrow or a godly regret. It's a godly grief because it leads to a true and full repentance. However, it's possible to be intensely sorrowful and feel horrible about a wrong done 
And yet it doesn't lead to a godly repentance, a true repentance. It doesn't lead a person to forsake their sin and to turn to the Lord for forgiveness and restoration. We see this in Judas, Judas Iscariot, after he betrayed Jesus. He commits the most heinous of all sins, and afterward he feels an overpowering regret. Of course he does. And to say he felt badly is an understatement. And yet his sorrow leads him to hang himself rather than seek mercy and forgiveness from the Lord. Paul calls this kind of regret, this kind of sorrow, a worldly sorrow, a worldly grief. And Paul says there that it actually leads unto death, not to repentance, not to forgiveness, not to restoration, but the weight of the guilt and the, the, the feelings of emotional regret and sorrow lead unto death because you don't deal with it properly. The two responses couldn't be more different. There's a sorrow and regret over sin that leads to repentance, and there is a type that does not. So let that be, just in the course of looking at this, a reminder and a warning to all of us to be careful to deal with your regret and your sorrow in the right way. Don't just feel badly about something that you've done, sin you've committed or are committing. A Judas can do that. But God would want our sorrow and regret to be a godly sorrow that leads to seeking God to turning from sin, to repenting and to putting our faith and our trust and our hope and our obedience back in Christ. That is a godly sorrow. So back to son number one. We don't have all of that explained for us here, but Jesus describes him as having changed his mind and heart. He comes to his senses. God must be at work. It leads him to a godly type repentance. He does a 180. And after saying a brazen no to his father, he goes off now and does the right thing, a right action. And that gives us hope, doesn't it? Because we're often like that. And God extends grace that we might change our mind. Now, we could say this. It would have been much better, would it not, for our cheeky son here to do the right thing right out the gate, to obey straight away. But he doesn't. And yet, he does do in the end the right thing. He obeys and he went and he did what his father asked. Now, enter son number two. Verse 30. In contrast to his brother, it says, and he went, the father went to the other son and said the same. He asked him to do the same. And this son answered, verse 30, I go, sir, or I will go. But notice, he did not Go. His initial response is yes, but his final response is ultimately his final action is no, he did not go. And that's even despite being friendly about it and, and respectful. He calls his father sir, has every indication, every sign on the outside that things are going to go well, he's going to obey. And in fact, he does just the opposite. In the end, he did not carry out his father's will, he only gave lip service. So, here we have it, the parable, simple, son one, son two, stark contrast. One says no, then in the end comes to his senses and obeys. The other son says yes, all seems well, but at the end of the day, he does not obey. And I want to pose a question at this point, and by way of application, say this. Which son are you? Which son am I? Who are we in this parable? Now, I'm not going to probe that right now, but do be thinking about it because we're going to come back to it 
towards the end of the sermon. Which son am I? We need to have that percolating in our minds. So Jesus, after he gives the parable, he then asks the listeners a probing, searching question. And they're going to give a response to this. His question, verse 31, which one of the two did the will of his father? So he's asking this to his hearers, which would include the disciples, the crowd. He's in the temple at this point. It also include, we notice from verse 23, the chief priests, elders of the people. So the religious, Jewish religious leaders are around him. And he poses this question to them. Who did the will of his father? Which son did the will of his father? Now, I'm going to give the kids an opportunity to answer this question. Which son did the will of the father? What's the right answer? Okay. I see heads nodding, but I don't hear anything. Think about that. Which son did the will of his father? My daughter and I had a conversation about this before, uh, before church started. The religious, an- religious leaders answer the first, and that is the answer. So we'll put there the two sons up. You can see the responses initially and finally. Jesus asked the question, which one did his, the father's will? And they answer the first. And that's the right answer. Well, when all was said and done, the first son did the will of the father. Now, again, we could say, well, it would have been a lot better to not rebel in the first place, delay obedience and, and all of that. But yes, in the end, the first son changed his mind and did the will of the father. And so they answered correctly. This son stands in contrast to son two, who responds well at the get-go but never acts. And so ultimately he despite a good start, rejects his father's will and does not obey. As commentator Matthew Henry says, some prove better than they promise and others promise better than they prove. And that's a great summary of the two sons. Some prove better than they promise, others promise better than they prove. Up to this point, all is well. What I mean by that is Jesus tells the story, gives the parable, uh, he follows it up with a question and they've responded, his audience responds to that question correctly. So far, so good. But everything is about to change. Everything's about to change quite dramatically, in fact, as Jesus applies the parable to his hearers. And it's gonna be a stinging application. Jesus says this, which one of the two did the will of his father? And they said the first. Now Jesus said to them, truly I say to you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. Where did that come from? That, that's like a, a right hook out of nowhere that lands on the jaw of the religious leaders there. That's a knockout punch. Where did that come from? Is Jesus... Being unfair here? Is he being too harsh? Is he playing dirty? And the answer is no, and I think the context will will help us here. In Matthew 21, in the following chapters, we are stepping into a context of escalating conflict and tension between Jesus and the religious authorities. In the beginning of chapter 21, Jesus enters into Jerusalem for what will be the final week of his life, and he's had trouble with the Jewish religious leaders, the Pharisees, Sadducees, the chief priests, etc. He's had trouble throughout his ministry, 
uh, with them, but the tensions are going to ra- rapidly escalate, as evidenced by the fact that by the end of the week, they crucify Jesus. So this is a, a boiling pot that's now about ready to explode. Prior to our passage, so prior to verse 28 in this parable, two important things have already happened. First was the temple cleansing. Jesus in righteous anger overturns the tables of the money changers and he puts a forceful stop to them using God's house as a a greedy marketplace. And Mark tells us that this offended them so greatly that they wanted to kill him right then and there. But they didn't because they feared the people. So, So Jesus cleansing the temple was, was really a, a significant moment of, of ratcheting up the hostility and the hatred and the intent of the religious leaders. Secondly, there was the questioning of Jesus' authority. And this actually provides an important backdrop to our parable. So let's just go back up to verse 27. I'm sorry, verse 23. And let me read that. And we'll begin to see the flow Verse 23, Jesus, and I'll put it up on the screen here as well. When he entered the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people came up to him as he was teaching and said, by what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority? Jesus answered them, I also will ask you one question. And if you tell me the answer, then I also will tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John. Where did it come from? From heaven or from man? And they discussed it among themselves, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say to us, Why then did you not believe him? But if we say from man, we are afraid of the crowd, for they all hold that John was a prophet. And so they answered Jesus, We do not know. And he said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Their questioning of Jesus' authority was not something that came from a humble heart, sincere motives. This was not a sincere inquiry. No, this is an in-your-face challenge, and there are some razor-sharp teeth behind their questions here. And so Jesus masterfully just turns it back on them and, in fact, does not answer their questions. But this questioning of his authority in this passage here sets in motion a sequence of events that begin to intensify in the confrontations and in the conflict between Jesus and the Jewish religious leaders that will ultimately culminate in his crucifixion. The dominoes have begun to fall. In our passage today, the parable of the two sons is the first in the beginning of that response to the questioning of his authority. Jesus will go on to tell two more parables following this one, and they are like arrows that are shot right into the heart of the beast. He gives the parable of the two sons, and he gives the parable of the tenants following in chapter 21, and then in 22, he gives the parable of the wedding feast. All three parables are meant to convey the same truth with increasing intensity. Because of the stiff-necked unbelief of Israel's leaders, because of their rejection of Messiah, they will not enter the kingdom. They will not know God's salvation. And what's true of the spiritual leaders is going to be true of the nation as a whole. Look with me at verse 43 and verse 44. Here's a, a summary. Jesus is speaking at the end of his second parable. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. 
And the one who falls on this stone, he's referring to himself there, the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. The conflict does not end with the three parables. It escalates further into chapters 22 and 23. You can take time to look at that. Uh, where they're confronting Jesus, trying to trap him. And then Jesus goes in and gives all these woes, these pronouncements of judgment in chapter 23. Things are getting very serious here. The gloves are off, and this is a fight. It's a foretaste, actually, of Jesus as righteous judge because this moment has has been developing for a long, long, long time throughout his ministry and the eruption point has come. But having said that, I do want you to see Jesus' spirit in all this. He's not vindictive. He's not reveling in being able to whack them. He's not flying off the handle and losing his temper. If you'd look with me at verse, uh, chapter 23, verses 37 through 39. This gives us an insight into the heart of Jesus. Yes, he's confronting them. Yes, this is strong. But look at his heart here. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often I would have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Jesus is not vindictive. He is representing the holiness of God and the time has come to confront his people and the leaders of his people and it's heartbreaking. And he weeps over Jerusalem. So this brings no sinister pleasure to our Savior but he's faithfully and rightly confronting those who have spurned the God of Jacob and and the God of Israel and the God of Abraham and who've turned their backs on their God. This is the heart of our Savior. All right, with with the grasp of that context, let's come back to our passage. We see and we read Jesus' words again. He says, truly I say to you, the tax collectors, prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. These words are a rebuke, but they also reveal something, and that is they reveal the identity of the two sons in the parables, and that is who they represent, okay? So let's consider the identity of the two sons. Jesus mentions in verse 31 two groups of people, the tax collectors and the prostitutes, that's one group, and then you. You see that? Tax collectors and prostitutes, and you. The tax collector, in Jewish, first century Jewish culture, of course we understand, the tax collectors and prostitutes were viewed with disdain. Uh, the tax collectors, because they were just passionately hated. They betrayed their fellow Jewish countrymen by being in cahoots with Rome. They often were... Uh, Greedy and corrupt, taking excess money that they collected, kept it for themselves, and so they were hated. And and we see that, we know that. That's why it was so shocking when Jesus calls Matthew, the tax collector, to be a disciple. The prostitutes, of course, 
were considered vile for their, uh, their sexual sin and their gross immorality. So, so Jewish society viewed these groups of people with contempt. They were the outcasts. They were the sinners. And the religious leaders disdained them, and they believed God disdained them as well. And there was no hope for them. Truth be told, they were sinners, weren't they? They were sinners. Their choices, their lifestyle demonstrated this. They were in effect saying no to God by how they were living their lives and the choices that they were making and the unrighteousness that they walked in. So that's true. They were sinners and they were saying no like the first son to the father. No. I'm not going to obey. I'm not going to follow your will. I'm not going to walk in obedience. No to God. But this, like the first son, was not their final response, not their final word, because something changed. Jesus says in verse 31 that they're going into the kingdom. They're allowed entrance into the kingdom of God. They're being saved. How? Why? Well, Jesus gives the reason in verse 32. He says, For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and then we'll skip down, and the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him. That's why. That's why. Like the first son in the parable, the tax collectors, prostitutes, the sinners, the outcasts, they had a change of mind about their choices and their direction in life. When John the Baptist, the forerunner of Jesus, came and preached, and this was his message, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, and people repented, believed, and were baptized. When he preached that message, many of them believed it, and they repented. They believed because they knew, they knew that they were not walking in the ways of the Lord. They knew They were walking in unrighteousness, that they had been stiff-arming God by their lifestyle and their choices and their rebellion. They were going their own way. But when John came and preached, they were convicted over their sin, and it proved to be a godly sorrow, and they were broken over it, and they returned back to their God. They humbled themselves, repented, and ran to God for forgiveness. The result, they were forgiven. Granted entrance into the kingdom, of Je- as Jesus indicates in verse 31. Amen and amen. Because I know many of you are hearing me this morning and you're saying, I understand that because that was me. That was me. And God reached in and, and broke into my life and changed me. And he gave me a change of perspective about my sin. He gave me a change of perspective about Christ. And he changed me. And he granted me the gift of of repentance and faith. And I am like that tax collector and prostitute. I am like that outcast sinner. That was me. But look what the grace of God did to me. Look what God rescued me from. We understand that. Praise God for his grace and mercy. And blessed are the sinners whom God awakens to their need for it. But there's another group. What about the you? What about the you of verse 31? They're going into the kingdom of God before you. The, the you, of course, is the tax collectors and the prostitutes. Uh, I'm sorry, the you is the chief priests and the elders of the people. Sorry, the religious leaders of the people. 
Uh, we see they're named back in verse 23. As you go throughout the chapters here, you, you'll, you'll see Pharisees, Sadducees, lawyers, chief priests, scribes. It's the religious elite, the established religious leaders of the people. They are the ones to whom Jesus is addressing this parable, as we've already mentioned, and he, they're going to be the, the uh, recipients of the next two parables. But if the tax collectors and prostitutes are the first son, then of course, process of elimination, second son is represented by these religious leaders. But we ask the question, in what sense are they like the second son? That's a fair question. In what sense are they like that second son? Well, like the second son, they said yes to God. After all, they were the spiritual ones. They were the religious leaders. They were the ones who had the law and upheld the law, or at least it seemed as if they did. They were the ones that said, I will, I'll go. And yet, things are not quite what they seem. Some promise better than they prove. Look with me at chapter 23, verses one through three. Jesus said this to the crowds and to his disciples, beginning of chapter 23. The scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat, so do and observe what they tell you, but not the works they do. For they preach, but do not practice. You see that? They preach, but do not practice. And then the rest of the chapter, he's going to go on and blast them for that. They preach and do not practice. Like the second son, they say, I will go, I will obey, but they do not. They honor God with their lips, but their hearts are far from him, as Jesus said back in chapter 15. They did not actually do the will of God, these religious leaders, despite their claims and their devout religious reputation. Despite all of that, they actually did not carry out the will of God. They did not obey. They did not do the will that God had intended for them. And this raises an important question for us. In what sense did the tax collectors and prostitutes, in contrast, in what sense did they do the will of God? And in what sense did the religious leaders not do the will of God? Well, we could say the issue was in how they lived, the difference between walking in obedience and not walking in obedience, obeying the commands of God, not obeying the commands of God, loving God and walking in righteousness versus not doing so. I mean, that's normally how we understand the will of God, how we live, how we walk. Scripture normally speaks of it this way, typically does, and that's right. So we could go down that trail and explore that. But in this parable, Jesus seems to be looking at doing the will of God from a different angle. Look with me at verse 32. I'll begin actually again in verse 31. Truly I say to you, the tax collectors and prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. For, he's going to give a reason for what he just said. For John came to you in the way of righteousness and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him. And even when you saw it, you did not afterward change your minds and believe him. Who enters the kingdom and why? Notice again, verse 32, Jesus is giving the grounds for what he says in verse 31. The reason, 
And notice where Jesus places the emphasis in verse 32. Three times in that verse we find the word believe. You see that? Three times. Jesus is emphasizing and making a connection between the will of God and believing. We could say it this way, that the ones who did the will of the Father were the ones who believed. The believing is the doing, in other words. At least, that's what it looks like as Jesus plays this out. This is what it looks like to do the will of God, to believe. The tax collectors and prostitutes believed. The religious leaders did not. The tax collectors and prostitutes repented. The religious leaders did not. The tax collectors and prostitutes were given entrance into the kingdom of God, and the religious leaders were not. What is God's will? What is God's will? It's not first a list of commands to keep. It's not. It's about believing in and receiving His Son. That's where God's will begins. John 6:40 Jesus says For this is the will of my Father that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life John 6:40 He says that's the will of my Father that you'd look to the Son and believe in him and you'll have eternal life God's will does involve how we walk and how we live it does but it doesn't begin there it begins with believing in Jesus. And if you skip, this is, this is so crucial, if you skip over that and you treat the will of God first just as do this or don't do that, then you have an empty shell of religion. An empty shell that will not save you. Case in point, the religious leaders. If you look to the Son and believe in Him, you will have eternal life. Why then does Jesus in this parable focus on John the Baptist and not Himself? Have you thought about that? Uh, because He could have, in verse 32, He could have said, I came to you in the way of righteousness and you did not believe Me. You know, believe in Me. But He actually puts... He goes back further and he puts the emphasis on John the Baptist. Why, did, why point back to John rather than himself? And I think the answer is because, it's fairly clear here, is because of what just preceded this passage in, in 23 through 27, where John the Baptist's ministry became the focal point of that confrontation and that argument. God had a purpose and a will for all people. He had a purpose and a will specifically for the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the chief priests, and that was that they would receive John, that they would receive the message of John. That's why John the Baptist went as a forerunner to Jesus, to accept his message, to believe, to repent, and to prepare the way for the Messiah. But as you go back, we read this earlier, um, as Jim read Matthew 3 for us, and you'll see elsewhere, they did not receive John. They rejected John. And in so doing, they rejected God's purpose and his, and his will for them at that time in his unfolding plan. 
Had they believed John, that would have led them to believe in Christ, wouldn't it? Had their hearts been prepared and had they believed the message of John the Baptist, that would have been a straight line to the Messiah. And yet they did not believe. They hardened their hearts in unbelief and believed neither John nor the Messiah. In fact, they were so hardened against God's purposes, it says in verse 32. Even when you saw it, saw what? The sinners, the outcasts coming in and and repenting and being accepted and entering into the kingdom, even when you saw that, you did not afterward change your minds and believe. Even when you saw that they were so hardened, how sad that is. How sad that the spiritual leaders saw with their own eyes the grace of God at work in the lives of the undeserving. They saw the grace of God at work and they hardened their hearts against it rather than believing. That's like son number two, really, because on the outside, they're giving every appearance of of religion, every appearance of obedience, every appearance of being for God and for his will and for his purposes, and yet they will not take the first step of humbling themselves, repenting and believing. They reject the forerunner and they reject Messiah. And it costs them eternal life. It costs them the kingdom. How hard and how blind the sinful human heart can be. I said we would return to this question, and we do so by way of application. And I ask myself this, and I ask each of you to consider it. Which son am I? Certainly, Jesus would have us ask this question. He would want us to ask that question. Which son am I? As I try to think through and apply this parable and take some inventory. As I reflect on the passage, I think there's three realities that we can take to heart. First, there's a will. There is a will. Namely, God's will. The will of the Father. And Jesus, as I've already read, tells us what that will is. John 6, 40, for this is the will of my Father that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life. Yes, God's will involves specifics of how we should live, but first and foremost, it's his will that we would look to Jesus and believe. That each person would cease trusting in himself and herself and what you bring to the table in your own righteousness and that you would give that up and believe in who Christ is and all that he is and all that he's done in his life and his death and in his resurrection, that you would believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Surrender, trust, believe in him. This is God's free gift and this is where the will of God begins. God offers it freely in Christ to those who would look to him in faith. And yet many live as Son number two in the religious leaders. They say yes to God. Everything seems good on the the surface, but they are actually rejecting God's will for them. So there is a will. It's the will of God, and it's that we would believe. And we need to really, we need to be careful, don't we? Because talk is cheap. 1 Timothy 2, this is good, and it's pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires or who wills, all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. 
So there is a will. There's also a warning. There is a warning here, and the warning is this. No amount of religious upbringing or spirituality, whatever that means, being spiritual, no amount of any of that will earn eternal life and an entrance into God's kingdom. If, if, if that were true, the religious elite would have entered. They would have had it. They would have been first in line. And yet they missed it completely. Matthew 7, 21, earlier in the gospel, Matthew, Matthew records Jesus as saying, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. This is a matter of spiritual life and death. And Jesus would warn each of us, do not be like the second son. Do not be like the chief priests and the elders of the people who despite their remarkable religious efforts missed the kingdom because they stumbled and they didn't take the first step of believing. They were hardened in their unbelief. So there is an inherent warning in this parable for each and every one of us and we would do well to heed it. But thankfully and lastly, there is a welcome. There's a welcome. There's good news. No sin, no matter how grievous, no matter how gross, will keep you out of the kingdom of God. You are welcome. And you can find forgiveness in Christ regardless of your offenses. The tax collectors, the prostitutes, the sinners, the outcasts, they prove this point, don't they? They were welcomed, and every sinner in between was, can be welcomed by the grace of God. Surely Jesus wants to, us to see that from this passage today, that we are all like the first son, in fact, aren't we? There was a time we were saying no to God and went our own way, and maybe there are some hearing my voice who are still doing that, saying no to God and his will, saying no to the Father, but as long as there is life and breath in you, there is hope, there is still a chance to humble yourself like the tax collectors, like the prostitutes, to believe in Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and to enter the kingdom of God. Have you done that? Are you believing in Jesus Christ? Is he your savior? Is he your treasure? Is he your Lord? There is a welcome and two passages come to mind. First is an Old Testament, second is a New Testament. Isaiah chapter 1, verse 18. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. That's an invitation. That's a welcome. Paul says in 1 Corinthians do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers, nor fill in the blank. None of those will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. That's one of the greatest statements in the Bible. But such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Amen? What great news for those who feel the weight of sin. Own it. Don't run from it. Be broken. 
Admit that you've said no to God. And like the first son, have a change of mind and heart and go back to God and do his will, which is to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. With mercy and grace, God welcomes you. Repent and believe. Trust in Jesus, who is a mighty Savior and who welcomes you by what he has done on the cross and in his resurrection. That's the gospel. That's the good news. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we, we marvel at our Savior. We marvel at his wisdom and how he says so much in so few words. And we see ourselves in this parable. And I pray that we would be found to be like the first son who despite rebellion received grace to change. And I pray that, Lord, you would turn our hearts afresh and anew, and for some, perhaps the first time, to Jesus, away from our sin and to Christ. And that you would grant us the desire to forsake all and to follow you and to take that first step of obeying your will, which is to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. God, may you do that in hearts today. May you awaken us to the need to take inventory and evaluate our own lives and to make sure that we've not only taken the first step, but that we're continuing to walk in obedience and to carry out your will, not by our efforts, but by your grace and not for our gain, but for your glory and for our good. We will thank you for this. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.